Hello and welcome to the why behind the what. My name is Nathan Albert and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. We are at episode 30. Can you believe it? 30 episodes this season. You should celebrate. I love it. Raise a glass. Do those celebratory dances. Last December, I had an idea for revamping this podcast. I wrote and recorded 10 episodes in a couple of weeks in my basement and have since interviewed some incredible and amazing people. This has been such a fun project, and I'm glad we get to celebrate together episode 30. So for all of you who have been traveling along with me, listening to these episodes, thank you so much. Thank you for leaving all those five-star reviews. And for those of you who haven't left a review, you have some homework to do. On this 30th episode, I interview Rich Velotas, the pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens and the author of The Deeply Formed Life, which is the book that was just released last week. Rich has written and spoken a lot on contemplative spirituality, on racial justice, and the art of preaching. If you know me, these are like three of my top interests and things that I love to read about. So this was such a good conversation, and I really felt so lucky that he said yes to being on this pod. It's also a great reminder, this conversation that Rich and I had, as he mentioned in this podcast, that God doesn't dwell in the illusion, but God dwells in reality. That God, the divine, is as close to us as our breathing that God, the divine, is all around us. And most of the time we forget this, but our task is to become aware of the true reality within reality. If you wanna learn more about Rich and the work that he's doing, you can check out his his website, richvelotus.com, and I've linked all that in the show notes as well for you. With that, here is my interview with Rich Velotas. Rich, welcome to the podcast. So good to be here. Thanks for being here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Tell listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do professionally, who you are personally. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker of Puerto Rican descent, uh, yeah, born in Brooklyn and uh, pastoring in Queens right now. Uh, Pastor uh, New Life Fellowship Church, which is a, a church that was started in 1987 by an Italian-American guy named Pete Scazzaro, and uh, some seven years ago, I succeeded Pete as the lead pastor. So yeah, uh, New Yorker through and through, uh, married, two children, and like the rest of the world, uh, trying to survive a pandemic. Yeah. How, how are you, I mean, being in Queens, protests, pandemic, I mean, how are you as a, as a minister, but then also as just husband and a father how are you holding up during all that we're seeing yeah you know i I think you know i I think i'm holding up well um the biggest disruption personally was uh becoming a a principal overnight uh where you know be with for our our homeschool of of two students so that was the most disruptive and disorienting aspect of this personally um but, you know, pastorally, I mean, the challenge was, especially uh, in uh, April and May, where Queens was the epicenter yeah. of the pandemic uh, in our country, uh, I was hearing stories of congregants and relatives of congregants uh, 
uh, dying uh, weekly. Uh, and so that was uh, very challenging uh, to walk with people, pray with people, um, and, you know, in a, in a socially distant, that was the most painful aspect of it, yeah. not being with people in their uh, most profound moments of grief. So, um, but other than that, I mean, I, I've tried to keep rhythms of prayer and uh, our Sabbath rhythms and such. So um, I, thankfully I've been able to uh, navigate it as well as I, I think possibly can here. That's great. One of the themes for this podcast for this season has been looking at kind of my story of being in ministry for a handful of years and just hitting a, a wall of burnout um, and where faith kind of, you know, being a Christian my whole life, the faith that I had been raised in was a pastor of the faith. It just all stopped working kind of, um, yeah, just burnout. And what really changed everything was discovering some ancient contemplative spirituality. Um, and I mean, it really changed the whole course of my life, changed my my faith, changed my how I function. So you kind of, I mean, you speak a lot on contemplative spirituality. You're a part of a, a church that is teaching that as a congregation. But how did you discover contemplative spirituality? Was it through burnout? Was it through accident? And how, what was that process for you? Yeah. Uh, in my story, it did not come through, through burnout. It, it came through uh, a course I took in college. And so I became a Christian at 19 years old. I'm 41 years old. So some 22 years ago, I became a Christian. Uh, and, um, you know, me and 14 other family members on one night uh, became a Christ followers uh, in a storefront church in Brooklyn. And uh, it was a Spanish speaking Pentecostal church. And so I was introduced very quickly to uh, that kind of Pentecostal charismatic world and uh, the power of God, the gifts of the spirit, all of that there. And then I, uh, I went to college uh, to study theology and pastoral ministry. And uh, by the second year, uh, I took a class on spiritual formation that they were offering. And the professor um, said I should read this book by Henry Nouwen on um, Return of the Prodigal Son. Oh, yeah, so and so I read Return of the Prodigal Son, and I thought, uh, who's this guy? Um, this, I'm 21, 22 years old at the time, and I'm, I'm just blown away by uh, Nouwen's analysis of the elder brother, the younger brother, and the father. And so I read that book and I thought, let me see if he's written anything else. And so I started reading Nowen's little books, The Way of the Heart, Out of Solitude, Wounded Healer. Uh, and uh, I believe it's The Way of the Heart where Nowen um, writes about the desert fathers and mothers. And so he starts referring to them, who are these people? And so I start at uh, 21, 22, start reading about St. Anthony and St. And, uh, you know, St. Martin and just the, the, the rhythms of prayer uh, and silence and solitude. And it was uh, after reading, we went on a weekend trip to a monastery, the class did, a Franciscan monastery in New York. And part of that day was uh, different students were um, positioned at different points in the monastery for about six hours. We couldn't from that particular space in the monastery. 
And the space that was assigned to me was this outdoor chapel on the monastic grounds, looking at like uh, these pews, outdoor pews of you know people who would be sitting there. And I was on the platform and he said, don't leave here for six hours. And I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is gonna be interesting. And in that space, I was and introduced to solitude and silence. It was just total, utter silence. And he just said, here's a journal, no Bible, because you're going to write sermons. Uh, just have a journal and reflect, write your words to God and everything. So uh, I tell you, Nathan, after that experience, those six hours, something happened in me. And uh, after that moment, I found myself back on the campus and it, I was looking, longing for moments of solitude and silence. And I would escape to like the library or some corner of the campus. Like I was doing something illicit. It's like, I just wanted to be with God. I was introduced to that level of contemplation very early on. So, uh, so thankfully in my journey, I didn't have to um, experience a kind of burnout before I was turned on to the contemplative tradition. Um, I, I was introduced to it uh, pretty early on. So, you know, at, at 21, 22 years of age. Yeah. How has it um, benefited you now that you've been practicing some of these rhythms, which we'll get into in a little bit and practices, how have you seen it benefit your personal life, but then also have you seen it benefit your congregation? I think I, um, I think the best person to answer is probably my wife, but uh, from what I what I, I I could think one thing, and she thinks no, that's definitely not the case with you know. Uh, but I think it's benefited me in a couple of ways. Where the way I relate to God is, um, I'd like to believe uh, not transactional, but relational. Uh, and so even in my time of a prayer with uh, before the Lord. Um, it, it's very easy to see prayer as this is what I need, or these are the problems that I have, and God, you know, fix them. And I think there's space for those kinds of prayers for sure. Uh, but if those are the primary ways that we pray, it be, God becomes just a a, a tool uh, to get me to a, a different emotional uh, existential place. Um, I've tried to the contemplative tradition has helped me to just relate to God. Um, as God, being attentive to the presence of God. So I think it's helped me to relate to God in that way, which in turn, um, I, I think the contemplative life and the contemplative prayer that I try to practice is to help me be attentive to the presence of God so that when I'm not in that kind of fixed mode of prayer, I'm attentive to the presence of God. Mm. Um, when I'm with my children, when I'm with my wife, when I'm uh, working, what have you. So uh, more than anything, I think it's helped me to cultivate um, a sacramental way of seeing the world, that like the presence of God is, is all around, and how do I now grow into awareness? And for the congregation, I think it's helped in that my number one, I think it, Eugene Peterson has written about that his, his number one task as a pastor was to teach people to pray. And um, I, I find myself doing that over and over again, mm. regardless of whatever, whether I'm preaching on race or injustice or, um, you know, any general theme of the Bible. Um, I want to teach the people I lead to pray, to cultivate a firsthand kind of life with God as opposed to a secondhand life with God. 
Um, and so I, I think those are some of the ways that it's, it's helped our congregation as well. Yeah. For me, I, it's so interesting looking back over my evangelical, I mean, I've, I've been all over the place from Pentecostal churches to Lutheran to Episcopal, kind of a mutt, but how little I actually learned in some of these congregations how to sit in silence or even experience silence, right? Like a band going for a half hour, fiery preachy, preaching for an hour, more, more music, and there was no sound, silence. Um, and yet how essential some of these practices are. Um, and I didn't find them in a church context all the time. Um, but how transformative they are. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes, it makes tons of sense. And, uh, as a pastor, uh, I, you know, I, I followed in, in, in the way that Pete led, uh, in, in this respect, we're creating space for silence, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, would talk about bracketing our days with yeah. silence. You know, and the, you know, we're silent in the morning because God should have the first word. We're silent at night because God should have the last word. We're silent before we open the Bible because God should have the first word. And we're, we're silent after we read scripture because God should have the last word. We've tried to implement that within our gatherings as well, where after we sing, we're silent. Uh, before we preach, we're silent. After we preach, we don't do it every week with that kind of regularity, but it's enough in our context where we want to introduce it. And not everyone's happy when we do it <laughs> because sure. of the distractions. They're, they have to now confront their own inner uh, demons and such and what comes to the surface of our consciousness when we're silent. Um, but uh, I, I, it, it's a gift that we offer when we, we're able to create that kind of space for people. Yeah. And you share a story in your book, which we'll get to more in a, in a couple questions, but you talk about having a, um, I think you had a monk or a priest come and you, and he said, you know, you talk about silence and prayer and you're, you don't have any in your church service. Um, which I think is so, I mean, true of, we can read Christian books without reading the Bible. We can, I mean, there's, there's all these things, but I, I think with these practices, these contemplative practices for me, what I've discovered is as someone who likes to do things and check them off my list, these are not the, yeah, you're doing them, but you're learning how to be, you're learning how to, there are ways to experience the presence of God rather than get more knowledge or get another book read. And that's a very different feel. We can talk about silence, but it's very different when we experience it. Yeah, and, and it's back to how we relate to God in transactional ways, or is it relational ways? And by relational, I mean simply being with God um, and not trying to get another insight, not trying to get something from my sermon, not trying to get direction for my life. And again, it's not these things are important and there's no place for it. It's just that those things tend to overwhelm our life with God, where it becomes, what can I get out of it as opposed to what does it mean to simply yeah. be with God? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your book. The book is called The Deeply Formed Life. Tell us a bit about that book. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote the book for a couple of reasons. One, I saw the way that it was, uh, the values that I write about impact people in my congregation. Um, there, there are five values that uh, uh, shape the life of our church in Queens. And uh, the five values I write about are contemplative rhythms, racial justice, 
interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And for each theme, each value, there is one chapter that gives an overarching kind of theological framing of it. And then the second chapter is about what are the particular practices to live into this value. And so I, over the years of pastoring at New Life, I've seen the impact that these values have made on people's lives. And so um, I see it as a paradigm of what it means to follow Jesus in this particular moment that we're in. And uh, I'm also trying to broaden uh, spiritual formation, uh, where spiritual formation is typically uh, seen as, you know, what are the what are the practices of prayer that you do? What are the practices of silence? It's usually you're in a monastery or on a mountaintop. But what does it look like to to live a, a robust paradigm of formation that includes things like race, that includes things like sexuality, that includes things like justice, that includes things like emotional health, uh, and hold it together in a paradigm. And uh, it's been my experience that the values that I, I'm trying to hold together are usually segmented and compartmentalized where there are people who work for justice, but they don't have a life of prayer with God, or people who have a prayer a life of, uh, with God in prayer, but they're not really thinking about race. Uh, you know, So those five values have been worked out in our community, and I wanted to introduce those values to the rest of the world, as well as to say, I think we can broaden spiritual formation through this paradigm. Uh, so that's why I wrote it, and uh, my, the hope is that we would live um, that kind of uh, interconnected life, uh, holding together these values. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about the, the five values that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, for example, with, with the, the contemplative rhythms chapter, uh, and that really is drawing from uh, the, the monastic tradition. Right. And, um, you know, when I, when I write about some of the practices, uh, I talk about things like what we're talking about, silent prayer. How do we cultivate life with God beyond words? Uh, I talk about the slow reading of scripture as a practice where in a scrolling, skimming world where we have our phones and where our thumbs are just going 100 miles an hour and we're not really taking anything in. How do we absorb the truth of scripture in ways that go deep beneath the surface of our, of our soul? Uh, you know, rhythms of Sabbath and uh, things along those lines. Uh, you know, when I wrote about race uh, and racial justice and reconciliation, I was trying to look at it from a formational perspective. And I think any conversation on race needs to be had on at least six levels, you know, a theological level, a sociological level, a historical level, an ecclesiological level, uh, a, a narrative level, but also a formational level. And it's often the case where we talk about race, we're looking at it from a historical lens or a sociological lens or maybe a theological lens. But how do we have a particular life with God um, that enables us to grow in this particular area? And so I, I talk a lot about connecting like family systems theory and with the work of genograms with how we've been racially formed and socially formed in this world to address race, uh, that, you know, at New Life, we say, you know, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And that ways we've been socialized over generations, it's really deep in us. And if we're not able to really 
pinpoint and identify with specificity the particular areas that God wants to heal and have us repent from, we're going to have a hard time really going deep beneath the surface as it pertains to race. Same thing applies to like uh, sexual wholeness. We've been formed in so many different ways through the culture, through our families of origin, uh, through the church, uh, to see our bodies and, and to see the connection or the lack of connection for the most part with our bodies and our sexuality. How do we live from a more contemplative uh, interior examination uh, space to even think about our bodies? So, I, I mean, these are some of the practices that I'm offering um, as I look at those five areas as a whole. Yeah. And I love the interconnectedness of it too, because I think it's, it's such a helpful framework when, when we're rushed and we don't have a contemplative rhythm that is going to affect our fam family relationships, how we view our body. That's going to, and, well, that'll affect our, not just our view of our body that can affect our, the physicality of our bodies um, that will affect our prayer life. And so you really kind of weave those through really well that these are connected. And I, I got the image from, I mean, I was speaking at a, uh, a church retreat in San Francisco a couple of years ago, and there was a, um, I was in the Redwoods, and uh, someone uh, who was uh, giving a talk before I went up, one of the pastors, he was talking about the, inter, the, the root system of these Redwood trees. And he just talked about how interconnect the reason they're able to sky so high go so high on the air is because the root system that they're a part of is complex and interconnected and i thought oh that's interesting and so i went home started researching just redwood trees and root systems and i thought oh i think this is the metaphor for the future of spiritual formation and you know you know life with god we need this level of interconnection yeah to follow jesus in this world well, it connects too with Paul talking about when one part suffers, we all suffer. When one part rejoices, we all, re right? Um, and especially I feel like now in a season of pandemic, when there are there's crisis and grief and suffering, and yet at the same time, there is a push of, pan uh, push of protests uh, where black and brown bodies um, are continuing to be just on the street and white people us white people, we are like, oh, it's, I'm not racist, this individual thing, that actually these are much more interrelated. Um, and then we even see, right, like how the pandemic is affecting some populations over others. I mean, these are, there's a lot of systemic things. Um, so I, I've loved that illustration in your book and think it's, it's surprising too, right? Like you think, oh, deep roots go deep in the ground, find that water. And that's not the case with redwoods. They're like just a few feet under the ground. Yeah, but they're, yeah. but they're so interconnected. Yeah, um, and uh, that's why they're able to sky so high. Which is why I was I, I fell in love with the image and and the cover of the book. You'll see the different you know the roots there and all that. But that's trying to communicate uh, the need for that level of interconnection mm -hmm. in this age. Has there been a a practice for you that's been most revolutionary or even surprising? You thought, ah, oh, we'll try it, and then. It's just been mind blowing. If I had one, if, if I'm if I'm on a deserted island and uh, you know I had one spiritual practice to take with me, you know, um, I'm taking with me centering prayer. Um, and uh, I, I was introduced to centering prayer. I, I mean, maybe a decade ago, 
And um, it's something that has shaped the way I just follow God uh, every single day. And again, centering, I, I used to find that uh, prayer was, I was very exhausted after prayer. <laughs> just said it every time of prayer. By the time I finished praying for everyone and their mother and interceding and, and Lord, this is what's wrong with the world. And this is what's wrong with me. And this is what I need. I was like, man, I'm exhausted, you know? Um, and then I was introduced to just a being with God that when your mind gets distracted, hold on to this anchor word or phrase to keep you attentive to the presence of God. And I have a very high pneumatology. I really believe the Holy Spirit is near. The Holy Spirit, God is with us. It's just that our awareness of God is missing. And um, I remember just being introduced to it and, you know, doing two minutes of just centering prayer and thinking, this is the longest two minutes of my life. And then continuing with it to the point where, you know, five minutes and 10 minutes and 15 minutes. And uh, I remember talking to a spiritual director and saying, I think God's calling me to stretch more. I'm going to a monastery. What should I do? And he said, why don't you do 30 minutes of just silent centering prayer? And I was terrified of doing it. I thought I was going to die in the process, you know, just there. And I survived and I thought, oh, I, I think this is what my soul uh, desperately needs. And so that's been probably the most revolutionary practice. And when I come out of times of centering prayer, whether it is for two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, my, my simple prayer is my verbal prayer at that point is Lord, you know, um, may I be attentive to your presence and in all the ways that it, it's coming to me, uh, whether through my children, to my spouse, through um, uh, the homeless person down the street through the person who I politically don't agree with. May I be attentive to your presence? That's probably been the most revolutionary um, thing for me. What about the value, transformational value of, of racial justice? What is a practice for white people in this season to, so they can continue to do the work of dismantling white supremacy? Yeah, I, I think... Um, uh, the one, there's a couple that come to mind, and I talk about it in the book, but I, I think what I just alluded to a, a few moments ago is um, recognizing the ways that we have been socialized mm -hmm. and recognizing the ways that white people have been socialized. Um, I do, again, I do a lot of um, work on the genogram with people and talking about the ways they've been shaped by their families of origin. And I've increasingly begun to do that, connecting it to race. Mm, mm. Uh, and what are the particular scripts? What are the particular moments that have racially impacted you and have served as now colored the lens through which you see the world? And it's often the case that people haven't done that work. And so because, you know, God can't transform um, us when we're in illusion. God doesn't dwell in illusion. God dwells in reality. And to the degree that we are in reality is the degree that we open ourselves up to transformation. Oh, that's good. But reality causes us to confront the particular ways that we've been shaped. And so uh, a simple exercise like um, how have you uh, been shaped by your family in, in direct and indirect ways mm. to view black people, to view um, Mexican people, to view Middle Eastern people, to view East Asian people, 
uh, to view African people. You know, I, I mean, can you can you think for a moment, how have you been socialized? What are the stories? What are the scripts? What have you been taught? And there is something really powerful about naming that. And I pastor a very diverse congregation, 75 nations represented in our church. And I remember earlier this year, before the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, you know, had a shelter in place, I led about 100 of our leaders in that exercise. Mm-hmm. And these are people who come there, they're used to this language. And, uh, and I remember asking them, and I shared myself, these are the scripts that I've received consciously or subconsciously about all kinds of people. And I remember asking um, some white people and some other folks, you know, some uh, a Chinese leader, a Korean leader, uh, you know, what, what are the messages you receive and the difficulty they had in naming mm. it because of the shame, mm. embarrassment. Uh, this is what I, I've been taught about black people. This is what I've been taught about brown people. And it was like, come on, say it, you know, just <laughs> name it. Can you, yeah. can you get it out? I know it's in there. And uh, a few had a hard time just even doing it. Uh, just, they, they were just too embarrassed about it. And I think if someone can just move beyond the embarrassment and say, yes, it is, I, I recognize, yeah, it, it is embarrassing to, uh, to name some of those things. But unless we're naming them with brutal honesty, we're, we're gonna have a hard time. So for me, I think that's one of the, um, the ways to begin to make some progress uh, and how we engage in just the racial uh, dynamics that we find ourselves yeah. in in the world. And that's, I mean, that is a spiritual process. This isn't just work for dismantling white supremacy. This is also, a, I mean, in some ways, it's almost like the examen, uh, but you're making it applicable to a certain event or situation or, or topic. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And it's from that place where we're able to name now the ways that white normativity and white supremacy has now colored the way we see the world. We're able to see the way that whiteness has now served as like the de facto yardstick by which all of life is interpreted through or measured by. Um, uh, but until we're able to do that work, we're not. We're gonna have a hard time seeing the ways that the larger constructs of uh, white supremacy, white normativity, uh, whiteness and such, uh, color and shape the way we live in the world. Yeah. One of the things I love about your book <clears throat> are the footnotes. I'm one of those guys who checks out the footnotes. But much of what I've discovered in in the contemplative spiritual world is there, there are a lot of white voices. And um, you have very few white voices and references in your book that you are um, the books you're quoting, the pastors, the resources. Um, they are a wide and diverse breadth, and I've I really did appreciate that because it's more than just the Henry Nowens and the Thomas Mertens, which they're in there, um, but it, it's much more expansive because these are these practices and and this way of life isn't a isn't the white church; it is the global church, um, and that's a it's it's a cool thing to see. And it's great to see. No, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I'm glad you're a footnotes guy. Uh, like, uh, Barbara Holmes, a womanist theologian, oh, yeah. she, you know, she wrote a book on the contemplative practices. And I never forgot when I when I read her book, I had one lens and framework of contemplation, which was utter silence and stillness. 
And it is, in terms of my personality, I gravitate towards that approach uh, of contemplation. When I started reading her talk about contemplative practices for the black church, and she did talk about the, the, the role of art and the role of dance and the, work, the, the role of this kind of expressive liturgy as contemplative acts. I thought, oh, um, you know, it's, it's good to see that there's not just one way to think about contemplation. Uh, that there are many different modes. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things that I, I was trying to explore that this is, all the things I'm talking about, um, there are plenty of people around the world um, who have something to say about this. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. If people want to get connected with you and support your work, how can people do that? Um, I'm engaged on social media. I've, I've gained a lot of friends and lots of stimulating conversation, and I've had to mute a lot of people as uh, well. <laughs> but, uh, but on Twitter, at just Rich Velotis uh, is one space. Um, uh, uh, RichVelotis.com is where um, you can learn also about some of the things that I'm doing and um, uh, things related to the book and uh, articles I've written and resources that I put out as well. So I, I'd say those are probably the two primary spaces if someone wants to learn more about what I'm doing that they can check out. Well, I want to just say thanks for being a part of this. And uh, your work has impacted me and um, following you on social media for a handful of years. So it's really cool to connect. And um, yeah, I, I think this is going to be an important book for a lot of people. Because like you say in the book, we've been cultured and taught to have a shallow faith in some ways. And I think so many, at least I work with students, I work with Christians, I'm in an interfaith environment on a campus. And so many of our students have this spiritual longing, but they've had a shallow faith. And it's like, they don't know where to go. Do they just chuck it all? Um, do they try a different faith? Um, do they stick to their church? They've been a part, part of it for 20 years that is actually probably more toxic than um, fruitful for their lives. And so I think a, a book like yours is really going to help um, a lot of people discover, oh, there's a, such a richness to the Christian faith that um, it, it truly is like it, it's a message of good news, not of rules and regulations, but of a, a way to encounter and become aware of the divine who's with us all the time, as close as our very breath. And when that, I mean, for me, when that snaps in your soul, um, it's, it, it's like the best news. It's, it's awesome. So hopefully, I, I mean, that's my hope for your book. And that's my hope as well. You said yeah. it better than I could. And, uh, <laughs> I just, I really appreciate just the time here and the invitation and um, yeah, hopefully we'll do it again. Friends, I don't know about you, but I feel as if that conversation could have gone on for hours. There's a lot of gems in there. I encourage you to pick up Rich's book, The Deeply Formed Life. It is great. I have really, really enjoyed it. If you want more information, there's some links in the show notes, as well as on my blog, I have a post about this podcast episode with a bunch of links for the work that Rich is doing. Also, I do want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I know there are a million out there, but one simple way you can support this podcast and be an encouragement to me is simply leave a short review on iTunes, share it on social media as well. It only takes a second, but reviewing it, rating it, sharing it, tweeting it. It is a huge help. And it 
uh, gets the word out there this, that this podcast is uh, available for so many others to listen to as well. And so friends, as you pursue a deeply formed life, one that finds God in reality, may you have peace, may you have calm, and may you have happiness. Happiness.